Hey guys, it's Steve Baker, the Pragmatic Constitutionalist, TPC. Call me whatever you will. I don't care. Hey, uh, seriously, good morning. I am uh, in Oklahoma. I am squirreled away in a secret location working on the Scamdemic book that I'm co-authoring with C. Edmund Wright. In fact, um, we are calling it, at least our working title, is The Scamdemic book because we want it to be the resource book for those of you who need and are looking for um, uh, content and resources and a thumbnail guide to all things related to what's been happening in this country in the last year related to lockdowns, related to uh, pronouncements by our politicians and our bureaucrats and the mainstream media and the disinformation, uh, the hypocrisy, the contradictions, blah, blah, blah. We're going to have them all listed in a easy to access format. So we're excited about that. So anyway, I've been on the road since, uh, oh my gosh, uh, the day after Thanksgiving. I think that I've actually spent three or maybe four nights in my own bed back in North Carolina during this entire time. There's no other way to say it except to just be uh, perfectly honest. I have no... uh, desire to be in North Carolina right now uh, because of the intense lockdown uh, that we've been under for months. And even though uh, my governor, the uh, Corona Gruppenfuhrer uh, Cooper, has uh, eased very, very, very slightly yesterday in his um, new executive order, uh, like for instance, he lifted the uh, 10 o'clock or 9 o'clock curfew whatever uh it was it's that we've been uh or they have because i'm not there that north carolina has had imposed upon them for the last couple of months i mean literally an actual curfew um and uh he's extended bar operational hours now uh they can serve alcohol up to 11 p.m as opposed to 9 p.m in the new order and just still some absolutely ridiculous capacity restrictions on venues. You know, fifteen percent on large venues, and um, uh, I, I don't. I, I'm not going to even read them. I'm not going to go over it. The point being is, is that I have no reason to be there because I still am not a, allowed to work. As most of you know, I uh, I'm in the entertainment business. I have uh, bands of my own. I manage bands. Uh, I work with uh, events and event planning, that sort of thing. And as a result of that, uh, the most of the venues that I work with cannot not yet operate at a um, economically feasible capacity. So it's actually cheaper for most of them just to remain closed uh, at this time. And as a result of that, I am taking the opportunity to be on the road. I'm taking the opportunity to hole up in some wonderful places that have been gifted to me uh, to uh, to do the writing of this book and to continue working on the other uh, projects that we're developing uh, in TPC world. And so uh, that's what I'm doing. I, I just have one quick commercial announcement. I really, really, really uh, hope that you will go over and support us on our new locals page. Uh the pragmatic constitutionalist.locals.com is a content creator site, um, kind of like a crowdfunding site, kind of like Patreon, but uh, without the um, uh, limitations being placed on conservative and liberta- libertarian voices. This was founded by Dave Rubin uh, for that very purpose to avoid uh, being uh, 
shut down to uh, being deplatformed. So we we have set up shop there for our exclusive content. And while it's free to subscribe there, you can receive things that nobody else is going to get anywhere else except for on our locals page for only five dollars a month. That's it, five bucks. The cost of a, um, a medium-priced coffee uh, or drink at Starbucks or your local um, bohemian coffee shop, and that will go a long, long ways in helping us do what we're doing and uh, keeping me um, in the writing mode while I'm waiting to be able to go back to work. So that's the extent of that commercial. Just please go to the Pragmatic constitutionalist.locals.com sign up today sign up for free if you if if, um if five bucks is too much but if you can if you can spend five dollars there um and sign up for that we would uh, be incredibly honored blessed uh very much appreciated and it will uh, it will help us pay for the things that we're doing right now so uh, i had promised the well yesterday i promised yesterday that i would read the blog that i posted because it was one of those long ones it's a uh, 3854 words almost 4,000 words and i know that that's uh, way too long for the uh, tldr crowd and uh, and and i get it uh i think a lot of people when they see an article that long they will scroll down scroll down maybe bookmark it save it for later but with all the the new fresh information and media that's coming in non-stop i i because I, I do the same thing I'll, I'll see an article i'll see a headline or something like that that i really want to read i'll start reading it and you know look looking at my clock and and wondering oh, do i really have time to finish this right now and then realize uh no i've got a, i've got something else i've got to do right now and then i Bookmark it, save it, and then it just gets buried in the pile. So I, I get it. So for those of you that prefer to listen, I promised that these uh, that this particular blog would be put up in audio form, that I would do a reading of it, and I would post it on all the podcast sites. So if you're on one of them right now, you know who already knew how to get there. Uh, it'll also be on YouTube, uh, YouTube, and uh, some other places. But we're we're, we're you know expanding constantly I, I'm, I'm forgetting all the places where we're we're uh popping up now obviously now we have two uh facebook pages the original pragmatic constitutionalist page is being throttled and shadow banned so deeply that i uh, i launched a mirror page a couple of weeks ago called steve baker tp uh, steve baker dash tpc steve baker dash tpc so if you're not seeing our post on uh facebook go sign up for the new page uh, it does not have the throttling restrictions on it yet and hopefully uh, we won't won't uh, do that for uh, or that won't happen to us there for a while uh, we're also on gab we're also on MeWe. Uh, as i mentioned we're on youtube we're on locals and we are also uh, we have a couple videos out there on rumble and you know those are those are for reasons that uh, those particular videos were not allowed on youtube so Anyway, that's what's happening in our world uh, in just a, a quick, quick, quick update way. Before I get into this reading, <laughs> I just moments ago saw this article in my own local uh, news feed. And when I say local, the local to North Carolina, which obviously I, I, I have national news feeds that I've subscribed to and, and local back home. And uh, the, the, the title of this article is 
Amid COVID-19 pandemic, flu has disappeared in the U.S. This was posted uh, today, February 25th. And I'm just going to read you the first couple of paragraphs. February is usually the peak of flu season, with doctor's offices and hospitals packed with suffering patients. But not this year. Flu has virtually disappeared from the U.S. with reports coming in at far lower levels than anything seen in decades. Experts say that measures put in place to fend off the coronavirus, mask wearing, social distancing, and virtual schooling were a big factor in preventing a twindemic of flu and COVID-19. A push to get more people vaccinated against flu probably helped too, as did fewer people traveling, they say. Another possible explanation, the coronavirus has essentially muscled aside flu and other bugs that are more common in the fall and winter. Scientists don't fully understand the mechanism behind that, maybe because there is no mechanism behind that, but it would be consistent with patterns seen when certain flu strains predominate over others, said Dr. Arnold Monto, a flu expert at the University of Michigan. Nationally, this is the lowest flu season we've had on record, according to a surveillance system that is about 25 years old, said Lynette Brammer of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hospitals say the usual steady stream of flu-stricken patients never materialized. At Maine Medical Center in Portland, the uh, state's largest uh, hospital, I have seen zero Documented flu cases this winter, said Dr. Nate Mick, the head of the emergency department. Ditto in Oregon's capital city, where the outpatient respiratory clinics affiliated with Salem Hospital have not seen any confirmed flu cases. It's beautiful, said the health system's Dr. Michelle Rasmussen. The numbers are astonishing considering flu has long been the nation's biggest infectious disease threat. In recent years, it was blamed for 600,000 to 800,000 annual hospitalizations and 50,000 to 60,000 deaths. I'm going to stop reading the article right there because, wow, I, I, I just, I just can't, I can't, I can't handle it. Um, to, to begin with, in my own state, the governor, on a weekly basis, would post an actual graph that showed, and I quote, quote this was the title of the graph that he posted on all of his social media, COVID-like syndromic cases in North Carolina. Did you hear what I said? COVID-like syndromic cases. That's what they were tracking back in october the cdc themselves announced that this coming flu season or that coming flu season they would not be keeping statistical data on flu for this flu season they said it we posted the links to it we posted the screen grabs of the 
pronouncements that they would not be tracking the flu. And the reason why they have not been tracking the flu is we, well, we all know why. It's because they've been tracking COVID-like syndromic cases. So if you come in with a mask-related bacterial infection, it becomes a COVID-like syndromic case. If you come in with the flu, it becomes a COVID-like syndromic case. The flu did not disappear. The flu did not get muscled out by another virus. They simply stopped tracking it. Not only did they stop tracking it, but they started adding those cases into the count. That is one of the things that we are going to prove conclusively in the book that C. Edmund Wright and I are writing right now, that these numbers are false, they are inflated, they are deliberately so, and uh, we're going to be producing the actual data, the math that proves that. And uh, I hope that uh, you'll stick with us long enough to um, uh, get that. Oh, by the way, oh, by the way, another teaser. If you are a subscriber uh, or supporter, rather, to our Locals page, uh, the pragmaticconstitutionalist.locals.com, there will be previews and excerpts of the chapters uh, presented there at Locals uh, long before publishing of the book itself. So if you're a supporter there, you'll get the first peek at a lot of what I'm talking about here. All right. I need to fulfill my promise now and read this blog. Uh, this blog was uh, entitled, um, Who Was Up the Chain on January 6th? And this is the result of my watching and listening and reading about the congressional hearings on January 6th events uh, this past Monday. It's Thursday now. Uh, what I read on Monday, I wrote it on Tuesday, published it on Wednesday, and today is Thursday. Uh, if that gives you some reference, this is Thursday, February 25th uh, of where we are. So I'm commenting basically on the uh, congressional hearings that took place on Monday. It's, it's, uh, it's rather long. I hope you'll stick with me here, and I will do my best to uh, not start, stop, and stutter um, my way through. Even though I wrote it, uh, it, it, is, it is a lot of material. And um, sometimes, you know, it's interesting, uh, just as another aside, it's very different when you write specifically to read as opposed when you write to um, speak it. Uh, it. It is a different writing technique uh, of which I've not differentiated or learned how to do yet. So the difference between writing for readers and writing for listeners is a, is, is, uh, is actually a, a craft I have not um, uh well, I've actually not even studied it, but I've noticed it from um, trying to read my own blogs. So here we go. Uh, this is, once again, who was up the chain on January 6th. I'm exceedingly frustrated by remarks being made in this week's congressional hearings. Any fair-minded person should be equally nonplussed by the unwillingness of elected officials and bureaucratic nominees to make honest comparisons between last year's endless BLM riots and the one day of violence projected against the Capitol building on January 6th. Many have openly dismissed any equivalence between those legitimate frustrations directed at systemic racism from American law enforcement and the seditious frustrations against those on Capitol Hill who systemically eliminate individual rights, impose excessive regulatory burdens, and confiscate an ever-increasing amount of our labor. Laws which must also be enforced by America's cops. Laws that demonstrably exacerbate the inequities between all manner of groups, races, and economic classes. 
but always seem to favor or exempt the elite themselves. Not the racial elite, but rather the political elite, elite of all races. This cognitive dissonance from power elites in both government and media regarding the aforementioned events have led me to finally coalesce my thoughts on that which took place on January 6th. Specifically, I've come to some conclusions, or at least a working theory, about the who, the how, and the why of what took place on Capitol Hill that day. As I mentioned, this is a lengthy analysis, not for the TLDR crowd, so grab the beverage of your choice and please allow me to walk you through to my final conclusion. Just as another side note, if you want to read along, uh, you can do that at thepragmaticconstitutionalist.com and go to the blog page and pull this up. Here we go. Let's begin with the Senate confirmation hearing of Merrick Garland. An attack on a courthouse while in operation, trying to prevent judges from trying cases, that plainly is domestic extremism and domestic terrorism, Garland said. An attack on a government property at night or under other circumstances is a clear crime and a serious one and should be punished. Hmm. An attack at night is simply a crime. An attempt to burn down a federal building while only occupied by law enforcement and night janitors is not domestic terrorism? Does he think we're not paying attention to his underlying message? Only when elected and or appointed bureaucratic elites occupy those hallowed halls does an attack by militant extremists qualify as terrorism? Or is he saying that only when right-wing antagonists execute an assault on government shrines should they be labeled as terrorists? As for yesterday's congressional hearing on the January 6th attack on, Cap on the Capitol, well, that elicited far greater consternation from me. As relayed by the Washington Post, Sund, the ex-Capitol police chief who resigned the day after the event, revealed for the first time that an FBI warning of potential violence by pro-Trump supporters reached the Capitol Police the evening before the attack, but was never passed along to leadership. He said, I actually just in the last 24 hours was informed by the department that they actually had received that report. It was received by the Joint Terrorism Task Force, which is a task force with the FBI. They received it the evening of the 5th, reviewed it, and then forwarded over to an official at the intelligence, intelligence division over at U.S. Capitol Police headquarters. Sund said it, neither, it, it, Sund said it went no further up the chain. He did not see it. Neither did the House and Senate sergeants of arms. The FBI document concluded or included comments picked up from an online conversation calling for violence. This is what that conversation that they picked up said be ready to fight congress needs to hear glass breaking doors being kicked in and blood from their blm and pantifa slave holders being spilled get violent stop calling this a march or a rally or protest go there ready for war we get our president or we die nothing else will achieve this goal Going back to the multi-city riots beginning on the evening of George Floyd's death, and I've been consistent on this since, law enforcement had the overwhelming capacities to stop the violence, 
stop the property damage, the fires, injuries, and killings in each city where these riots occurred. For some reason, they've not had the orders to do so. As a libertarian, I believe there is no liberty without private property, and therefore, lethal force is justified in protecting both life and property. And especially when law enforcement themselves are being assaulted during that process of protecting life and property. The foundational thesis of limited government, constitutional libertarians, is that government has but one moral function. Specifically, to protect we the people, our stuff, and our liberties from force and fraud. Period. Full stop. With that reasoning, Reasoning, and to some of you, this will not be a very popular statement. Only one officer actually did his job on the 6th. That was the officer who shot Ashley Babbitt. And for that very legitimate reason, he will not be charged with the crime. He was actively guarding House members who were being evacuated from that area against a large group of aggressive insurgents with unknown capabilities and weapons and he was protecting them from entering that area in which he was charged to protect. Now, speaking of the weapons used and found in D.C. on January 6th, according to CNN, some of the weapons that were confiscated had been seen being used inside the U.S. Capitol, including a baseball bat, a fire extinguisher, a wooden club, a spear, crutches, a flagpole, bear spray, mace, chemical irritants, stolen police shields, a wooden beam, a hockey stick, a stun gun, and knives. One man was arrested on Capitol grounds with a handgun and 25 rounds of ammunition. Parked blocks away in a pickup truck was found an AR-15, a Glock, and 2,500 rounds. Another vehicle was discovered with 11 Molotov cocktails. These were not brought to the Capitol, by the way. Esquire magazine reported that one man brought a crossbow. It's not clear whether or not he actually carried that to the riot scene from their writing. Were there other firearms carried by Capitol rioters? Maybe. Probably. But the vast majority of those who participated in violence or simply stood on the sidelines and watched were never even searched. So we will never know. Most importantly, though, is what we know that didn't happen. No one brandished or used firearms against police officers during the melee. Only one shot was fired, and that was the one that killed Ashley Babbitt. Virtually all the Capitol Police, Metro Police, and representatives of other law enforcement agencies were armed. They could have stopped this so-called insurrection in minutes. Why they didn't is the question no one is asking. Let's examine the sequence of events as testified upon in yesterday's hearing. At about 1 p.m., Sun called Robert J. Conti, the chief of police for Washington, D.C., and 100 officers were deployed. At 1.09 p.m., Sun called House Sergeant-at-Arms Paul Irving and Senate Sergeant-at-Arms Michael Stinger to get permission to deploy the National Guard. He said that the pair told him they would run it up the chain, but he didn't hear back. After that, Sun called Irving twice more for a follow-up. After that, Sun called Stinger once more for a follow-up. 
At 2.10 p.m., Sun got approval from Irving to call for National Guard support. At 2.26 p.m., Sun Sun joined a call with Pentagon officials and asked them to deploy the National Guard. Lieutenant General Walter E. Piat, the director of the Army staff, is said to have told those on the call that he could not recommend calling in the Guard. So who up the chain was blocking or denying Sun's request for backup? I stand by my statement in a previous blog that the skirmish line on the Capitol steps was nothing more than a rope-a-dope move, orchestrated by whoever up the chain was making those decisions. Officers could have ended the event an hour earlier simply by drawing down on the crowd with their weapons and dispersing them under threat of lethal force. I witnessed dozens of police officers being injured and receiving first aid, many who then even returned to the violence. At any time, one of those sharp or heavy projectiles thrown from the attackers could have critically injured or killed an officer. I contend that after what was over an hour's worth of violence in which the aggressors deployed no firearms, the officers received orders to stand down and allow the more violent of the mob to proceed to the building. While we have seen videos of doors and windows being broken, we have also seen videos of police officers opening doors from the inside as dozens of armed officers stood aside and watched the crowd enter. Then, and only then, did passive observers of the violence join in line to also enter the building. Once again, not one of the violent element so much as brandished a firearm. Of the thousands of photographs and videos, no such scene has ever been witnessed. Again, any of the violent actors, and most certainly the dumbstruck tourists, could have been stopped in their tracks had officers produced their weapons. As it happened, before my own eyes, police did not draw their weapons until reports of shots fired were received over their radios. In actuality, the one shot fired at Ashley Babbitt. It was within moments of that shot that heavily armed ATF police entered the scene, also wearing full tactical gear. Whether they were already on the way, coincidentally arriving immediately after the shooting, or were already positioned nearby uh, or inside is unknown to me. While I do not consider myself an investigative reporter, my interest in follow-up of this event, for obvious reasons, have remained heightened since the January 6th. As such, I've had many conversations with highly connected military and law enforcement personnel. I've developed my own theories of how events transpired based on the following information. According to interviews I've read with congressmen, some have stated that they were informed by their own personal security that a potentially dangerous event was likely on the 6th. Multiple mainstream media outlets have reported that the FBI, Homeland Security, and the Pentagon had actionable intel on that potential event as far out as two weeks in advance. Remember, D.C. Police, or um, Capitol Police Chief Sund, denies this intel was passed along to his department. I personally read a tweet from a congresswoman in which she said that at 9.34 a.m. she saw people already gathering at the Capitol building on the day of the rally. I cannot find that tweet or remember who it was. My bad. I've searched. I should have made a screenshot. Astonishingly, there was little to no police presence at the rally area itself. 
While I was not able to access the ellipse area because of the crushing density of the crowd there, the much larger mass of people gathered on the Washington Monument lawn were not accompanied by any of the police presence. My own videos began upon arrival at 9.32 a.m. and continued until I proceeded to the Capitol, about halfway through Trump's speech. And not one police officer is ever seen in a single frame of my own videos. Many who have attended multiple rallies and protests in D.C., including January 6th, have also commented upon this same highly unusual observation. Where were they? Certainly the president was well attended to at the Ellipse, but why was there no visible presence of law enforcement where the largest group of attendees were gathered? Sun requested backup from the Metro Police at 1 p.m. I saw their arrival firsthand shortly thereafter. Trump did not conclude his speech until 1.11 p.m. I've previously well-documented all timelines and have the video metadata to verify all my assertions on these timelines. I arrived at the skirmish line at 1.19 p.m., capturing video of the melee until, at 2.15 p.m., the heavily armed police line suddenly and inexplicably stood aside moved back and allowed the mob to approach the now opened from the inside west doors of the Capitol building. These officers did not act synchronously of their own accord. They take commands from up the chain. Someone gave the order for them to stand down. They were not overwhelmed by thousands of insurrectionists. That is the biggest lie of the ongoing narrative. With video evidence, evidence, I can show no more than 200 people and probably as few as 100 actively engaging in actual violence and pressing against the police barricades. The several thousand observing the happenings were doing just that, observing and taking cell phone videos, as I've also well documented. It was only at this point that several hundred non-participants in the violence joined in the lines proceeding to the Capitol doors they entered. Of additional great interest is the fact, as I've also documented, that many professional photographers adorned in protective gear and some wearing press badges were already on the scene upon my arrival. How did they know? Who told them to be there and to so prepare themselves for the violence that was to take place? Details of everything I saw that day, up to this point and afterwards, can be read on my blog, entitled, What I Saw on January 6th in Washington, D.C. That's dated January 13th, 2021, and can be found at thepragmaticconstitutionalist.com. Since that day, my conversations with the aforementioned military and law enforcement personnel have revealed to me the very high probability that both Special Forces operatives and U.S. Marshals were mixed in with the crowd that entered the Capitol building. I asked them that question about possible undercover professionals because of the five very distinct types of persons I observed in the crowd that day. The first type I saw were antagonists from right-wing militias and extremist groups. Second, I saw antagonists from left-wing Antifa BLM-type organizations. In fact, you can see my podcast interview of John Sullivan's brother, James, who details his radical brother's activities that day. That is found on the Pragmatic Constitutionalist YouTube page. 
The third type of individual I saw were the peaceful rally participants who entered the building after the police stood down. Number four type of individual were those credentialed and citizen photojournalists gathered in the crowd. The fifth type, who were very obvious, at least to me, were the professionals who were not active in violence or destructive acts, but who were very carefully, very carefully keeping a close watch on everything taking place during all the proceedings. Uh, they were very obvious. Their heads are on a swivel, their eyes constantly darting back and forth. Now, to my theory of how and why events transpired. Irrefutably, the intel of possible violence was known to the highest officials in our government. If the FBI, Homeland Security, and the Pentagon knew, then most certainly Pelosi and McConnell knew. And, most likely, President Trump. Every known piece of visible and documented evidence proves that the early breach of outer barricades was allowed to happen. This was accomplished by a small group of people against an armed police force. It did not have to happen. It was allowed to happen from up the chain. The hour-plus skirmish by which early insurgents against police lines was also allowed to happen. Police were heavily armed, but only riot control measures were used against the antagonists. Tear gas, flashbang grenades, pepper spray, and some rubber bullets. This did not have to happen. It was allowed to take place until police were ordered to stand down from up the chain. At least two doors, of which I have video, were opened from the inside and several hundred people were allowed to casually stroll into, into the Capitol building, during which time dozens of armed police officers stood aside and watched under orders to do so. The legislative seat of the most powerful nation on the planet was not breached by so-called armed insurgents who never fired a single shot. Using only sticks, poles, bear spray, axe handles, and baseball bats, no more than 200 violent activists were allowed inside by a security force of at least an equally numbered amount of law enforcement officers possessing far more deadly weapons than those used by the antagonists on the skirmish line. Again, this did not have to happen. This was allowed to happen. The ongoing hyperbolic narrative of heavily armed insurrectionists is utter bullshit. I do not believe officials making these decisions were complicit in planning with the violent factions. I know they knew what potential existed and that they carefully orchestrated by command and control actions each step of the events that transpired. National Guard presence was not wanted on site too early so as to not scare off the militant groups and thwart their intentions. But once it was determined the militant factions would not use overtly deadly force, firearms, they were gradually allowed access to the Capitol grounds, then the steps, and then the building. Beginning with the breach of outer barricades, followed by the violent skirmish line, and finally access inside the building itself was granted. The presence of riot-geared photographers with press badges already on site before the conclusion of Trump's speech was a dead giveaway that up-the-chain officials both knew and had tipped off the media about what was to come. 
Despite broken windows and damage to some offices and other Capitol property, it was not until Ashley Babbitt was shot that Capitol and Metro police officers drew their weapons and were then accompanied by much more heavily armed policing agencies. I saw all of this with my own eyes. I have the video. Tear gas was then deployed inside the building, and with weapons drawn by police, the building began to be cleared out. Based upon the firepower of those law enforcement personnel and the utter lack of firepower by those who were allowed inside, congressional personnel and Vice President Pence were never in any real danger. I also believe the aforementioned Special Forces operatives and U.S. Marshals were deployed so as to be mixed in with the crowd should the militants actually use firearms or somehow gain direct access to congressional VIPs. I do not believe their presence was part of some grand conspiracy to gain access to congressional computers and files on Trump's behalf, but that they were there for the express purpose of taking care of business outside or inside, should actions by the more militant of the mob get lethally out of hand. I've come to the conclusion that in the earliest realization of potential unrest by the highest of congressional officials, it was determined they could win a decisive PR victory to ultimately be used in bringing the legislative and executive might of the U.S. government against so-called right-wing extremists of every stripe. Indeed, to be able to shape the narrative that not just Trump supporters, but all Republicans, conservatives, libertarians, constitutionalists, and every individual and or group possessing, possessing political beliefs on the right side of the political debate could be labeled as extremists, seditionists, insurrectionists, and ultimately domestic terrorists. Labels earned not only by those who participated in violence and destruction, but also heaped upon those who would just use political speech antagonistically against the incoming neo-Marxist presidential administration and new Democratic majorities in both the Senate and House of Representatives. In short, what transpired on January 6th was the largest PR victory won by progressives, since the stock market collapse of 1929 and the ensuing Great Depression. What progressives gained in those following years, by way of the establishment of the New Deal and the birth of our existing welfare state, this day similarly gifted them both the moral authority and the public outcry, requiring them to silence opposition voices and finally justify draconian gun control measures. We've already witnessed the deplatforming of Parler and the deletion of scores of conservative social media accounts, including that of the then President of the United States. Just yesterday, congressional leaders have called upon cable and satellite TV carriers to drop Fox News, Newsmax, and OAN. To their gun control aims, pay attention to the language and headlines used by mainstream media outlets. From the Hill... Police seized alarming numbers of weapons on Capitol rioters, court documents show. From CBS, arsenal of weapons seized from Capitol riots. NBC, dozens arrested for Capitol riot after feds find guns. The Washingtonian, guns, brass knuckles, homemade napalm. Read some of the documents from arrests after the Capitol riot. From Vice, 
cops found this terrifying weapons arsenal in a pickup at the Capitol riot. That last headline is instructive. Found in a pickup? In reality, only one person was arrested with a handgun on Capitol grounds, and none were used. Yet, gun control legislation now being considered by Congress and supported by the Biden administration would instantly criminalize more than 100 million law-abiding citizens who took no part in the January 6th affair and have never used their firearms illegally. While I'm certain the current bill, as written, will never pass, I fear what compromises GOP leadership will make toward a more watered-down version. Even if only 10% of this bill's proposals become law, it will be devastating to America's law-abiding gun owners and emasculate our founders' intent behind the Second Amendment. With each carefully directed act in the drama that played out on the January 6th 2021 affair, the occupying elites of that federal building on Capitol Hill seized far too much control over the prevailing narrative and captured an unprecedented amount of political territory in their escalating war against the First and Second Amendments. Thank God the only weapon fired that day was by law enforcement. Otherwise, the Second Amendment would most surely now be lost. Were those calling the shots up the chain, anticipating or hoping for an actual exchange of gunfire between the rioters and police? Were they prepared to sacrifice Capitol Police officers on the altar of tyranny? Did the one Capitol Hill police officer who died that day not have his life ended in the manner those up the chain actually desired? From the bullet of a man who could be tied to the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, or some actual white supremacist militia? Will Pelosi and McConnell ever be forced into a position where they must answer these hard questions? Unfortunately, a couple hundred radical suckers somehow were deluded enough to believe they could stop the steal, occupy the Capitol building of the United States, and perhaps take Pelosi and Pence hostage with bear spray and sticks? Were some just leftist radicals wearing Trump hats as false flags, there to create chaos and foist blame upon the hundreds of thousands of mostly peaceful protesters? Either way or both, they were nothing more than useful idiots who in advance of the day projected their violent intentions on social media using electronic devices monitored by the NSA and who fell right into a well-anticipated trap one that will land many of them in federal prison for a lot of years and quite possibly create a prison state for the rest of us. Meanwhile, Pelosi's 9-11-style commission will most certainly be a whitewash of what took place behind the scenes that day up the chain. That's no matter how loudly, no matter how frequently we ask, what did she know and when did she know it? And that concludes that uh, nearly 4,000-word blog reading. Once again, please join us on our Locals page, thepragmaticconstitutionalist.locals.com. It's free to subscribe, but for only $5 a month, you can help us with uh, what we're doing here, and you can also then receive exclusive content that will be posted and shared nowhere else just for our supporters there. 
uh, all the other places and all the other social media sites and video sites that you can find our stuff will be posted below here on the YouTube page. And uh, obviously you can find us on Facebook, MeWe, Gab, YouTube, all the podcast sites, whichever one is your favorite platform, go there. And uh, we're going to be churning out a lot more of these in the coming days. Thanks much. Look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you.